I want to invite you to turn in your Bibles to 1 Samuel, chapter 13. This evening we'll study the whole chapter. I think I've got it listed for 1 through 14, uh, but we'll go ahead and we'll study the whole uh, of the passage of Scripture. Uh, verses 15 through the end regard the result. And so uh, this evening, uh, one of our sermon points won't be derived from it, although uh, I'll make comment on it. It sort of leads from chapter 13 into chapter 14, as these were originally an unbroken narrative without chapter division. Just so you know, we could study it next week, but there's also relevance for us uh, as we study verse or chapter 13. So we'll study it all together. First Samuel chapter 13. This is God's word. Saul lived for one year and then became king. And when he had reigned for two years over Israel, Saul chose 3,000 men of Israel. 2,000 were with Saul at Michmash and the hill country of Bethel. And 1,000 were with Jonathan in Gibeah of Benjamin. The rest of the people he sent home, every man to his tent. Jonathan defeated the garrison of the Philistines uh, that was at Geba, and the Philistines heard of it. And Saul blew the trumpet throughout all the land, saying, Let the Hebrews hear. And all Israel heard it, said that Saul had defeated the garrison of the Philistines, and also that Israel had become a stench to the Philistines And the people were called out to join Saul at Gilgal. And the Philistines mustered to fight with Israel 30,000 chariots and 6,000 horsemen and troops like the sand on the seashore in multitude. They came up and encamped at Michmash to the east of Beth-Avon. When the men of Israel saw that they were in trouble, for the people were hard-pressed, They hid themselves in caves and in holes and in rocks and in tombs and in cisterns. And some Hebrews crossed the fords of the Jordan to the land of Gad and Gilead. Saul was still at Gilgal and all the people followed him trembling. He waited seven days, then uh, the time appointed by Samuel, but Samuel did not come to Gilgal. And the people were scattering from him. So Saul said, bring the burnt offering here to me and the peace offerings. And he offered the burnt offering. As soon as he had finished offering the burnt offering, behold, Samuel came. And Saul went out to meet him and greet him. Samuel said, what have you done? And Saul said, when I saw that the people were scattering from me, And that you did not come within the days appointed, and the Philistines had mustered at Michmash. I said, now the Philistines will come down against me at Gilgal, and I have not sought the favor of the Lord. So I forced myself and offered the burnt offering. And Samuel said to Saul, you have done foolishly. You have not kept the command of the Lord your God. With which he commanded you. For then the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever. 
but now your kingdom shall not continue. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart, but the Lord has commanded him to be a prince over his people because you have not kept what the Lord has commanded you. And Samuel arose and went from Gilgal. The rest of the people went up after Saul to meet the army. They went up from Gilgal to Gibeah of Benjamin. And Saul numbered the people who were present with him, about 600 men. And Saul and Jonathan his son and the people who were present with him stayed in Geba of Benjamin. But the Philistines encamped at Michmash. And raiders came out of the camp of the Philistines in three companies. One company turned toward Ophrah in the land of Shual, and another company turned toward Beth Horon, and another company turned toward the border that looks down on the valley of Zeboim toward the wilderness. Now there was no blacksmith to be found throughout all the land of Israel, for the Philistines said, lest the Hebrews make for themselves swords and spears. But every one of the Israelites went down to the Philistines to sharpen his plow, his mattock, his axe, or his sickle, and the charge was two-thirds of a shekel, For the plowshares and for the mattocks, and a third of a shekel for sharpening the axes and for setting the goads. So on the day of battle, there was neither sword nor spear found in the hand of any of the people with Saul and Jonathan, but Saul and Jonathan his son had them. And the garrison of the Philistines went out to the pass of Michmash. Thus far, the word of the Lord our God. Let's pray together. Lord, as we consider this ancient history, oh Lord, the history of the people of Israel and the history of the kingship of Israel and the rule of Saul, we pray that, Father, you would display to us eternal truths. Lord, truths about our own souls and truths about your heart and your mind and your delights. Oh Lord, help us to see the very need we have for a king who is also a prophet and a priest the Lord Jesus Christ, to rule over us and in us and to direct our lives. Oh, Father in heaven, we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. Proverbs chapter 16, verse 18. And this one verse of Scripture seems to ring very loudly and very true in the passage of Scripture that we have just read. Because we've seen Saul in this passage of Scripture face not just one bad circumstance, but really, I think we can honestly say, the worst circumstance of the course of his rule as king. This is the one thing, the one circumstance, the one action that ended up having him and his household cursed that would then unfold these terrible uh, and disastrous uh, repercussions for his own family and for the kingdom of Israel in the future. Though this passage is historical text and it regards Saul and his kingdom, a kingdom that is long past, friends, this has so much to tell us, not just about him, but about the foolish character of the hearts of mankind, the things that we think we ought to do. And there is an example in Saul of exactly how our hearts work whenever we are frustrated with the means of the Lord. And so as we take our attention to this passage of Scripture, I want to encourage you to consider the false security of self-sufficiency. 
and also the truth that stands forever of the revealed will of God. The three points I want us to see in the passage, specifically in verses 1 through 7, is the fool's prideful boast. The fool's prideful boast. In verses 8 through 12, the fool's pragmatic sin. Verses 8 through 12, the fool's pragmatic sin. And then in verses 13 through 23, the fool's well-deserved punishment. The fool's well-deserved punishment. As we were reading this passage just a few minutes ago, depending on what translation you're reading in, it may read a little differently than what I just read. Even within the ESV, I've got two uh, printings, two different versions even of this, own, of this single passage, two different translations, if you will. And the older one that's here bound into my Bible uh, reads like this. Saul was dot, dot, dot years old when he began to reign. And he reigned dot, 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 and two years over Israel. And this is one of the things, whenever they come to the passage of Scripture, when translators do, they see that the passage has some ambiguity, some, some structural weirdness, but it seems as if that there are, are numbers left out of this first verse. And there's some difference, uh, minor difference, uh, with later text as they try to deal with this. Um, but what I read to you is a very basic uh, reading with minor interpretation uh, by the ESV translators. And so I want to read to you and explain to you why it's a little different and why I also think that both uh, are entirely appropriate for the text. So the new translation, or the other translation if I may, reads, Saul lived for one year and then became king. Uh, The Hebrew says, and literally, Saul lived for a single year or for a year and then became king. So that would, if we read it really rigidly, make him one year old, as old as Owen. And that makes no sense because he's also in the passage king who has gone after the donkeys of his father and he has a grown son. However, whenever the ESV reads it under this light, the Hebrew means he lived for one year after his appointment and then became king. So it makes perfect sense. It accords with the Hebrew in the text, even though it's a difficult text to translate. And then the second part, where some translators think that a number has fallen out, is that when he had reigned for two years over Israel, uh, the author of Acts tells us that Saul reigned 42 years over Israel. And there are some later manuscripts that put in 42 years. But this seems to me to be rather clear. Saul becomes king after one year. He reigns for two years within his kingship. And then this is when the event comes to pass. I do want to say to you Uh, This has no substantial difference in the text of Scripture. It doesn't contradict. If anything, it's an omission or something that that commentators and translators, whenever we read and try to understand this, struggle more than 2,000, really more than 3,000 years after its original writing. But there's no substance lost. 
And for me, I just like the more basic bear one. Saul lived for one year. It says he was living for a year, becomes king, and then he reigns, and it says he lives for two years. We know absolutely that much, and I'm entirely pleased with it and satisfied. The only reason I bring it up is because you may be reading a translation that reads very differently and may even have a note within it, and you think, well, pastor just either was ignorant of it or I didn't want to talk to us about it. So I just wanted to note that before we got into the text. But as we go into verse 2, there the narrative really begins. It's not just the setting of context. And we have the account of the gathering of a military army uh, by Saul. We're told that he chose 3,000 men of Israel. That's a blanket and simple statement. And the number seems uh, to stand as clear as it possibly could be. And then we're told that he divided his forces into two different settings or two different garrisons or bases if you want to think, it, think of it under those terms. 2,000 were with Saul in the city of Michmash, thought to be a walled city. Uh, and it's a, a little bit north. It's, it's, it's north of where a lot of the action happens here in the passage of Scripture. But there are 2,000 uh, with him in Michmash in the hill country and in the hill country of Bethel. And then there are 1,000 that are assigned to Jonathan, his son. And this, again, is the first time we're hearing of Jonathan. And we encounter him as a man, obviously of some age and some stature, if he's going to be commanding a military force, or at least it makes only a lot of sense that he would be of some years uh, in this passage of Scripture. And then we read that the rest of the men, we don't know if they're capable or equipped for uh, military warfare or qualified or anything of that nature, but we just simply read that the rest of the people were sent home, every man to his tent. And whenever I read this, my sense on it is this, is that Saul has the intention to tax the people of 3,000 of their men to be in a standing army, to be ready for warfare, uh, to be men at arms, okay? And that the rest of the men are just disposed of. And one of the things that I I want you to see here uh, is that this reveals at least a little bit about Saul. And that is, as a leader... He hadn't studied the power of his enemy's force. Because as we read a little bit later on, whenever the Philistines come to fight, there are far, far, far more than 3,000 men on foot, aren't there? 30,000 chariots, verse 5. 6,000 horsemen and troops more than can be easily numbered. So there's this... The sense that Israel is small, quite possibly that Saul is already making prideful decisions, lazy decisions, and poor decisions as a leader. And then in verse 3, there's an abrupt change, and we get into the action of the narrative. And uh, what we read is that Jonathan defeated the garrison of the Philistines that was at Geva, and the Philistines heard of it. Now, that's right into the action. You've got an army, it's raised, it's divided in two places. You have conceivably a northern and a southern army. It makes good military sense not to keep them all together. So if they get backed into a corner, what can happen? The other group can then come and assist. They can flank uh, or they can come around uh, and, and, and be of help uh, to encircle the enemies of the army of Israel. But then here, 
Jonathan defeats the garrison of the Philistines. And we've already heard about this garrison before. We've been told in chapter 10 that there is a garrison of Philistines uh, in this place called Geba. It's a little bit of a historically obscure location. Um, But the Lord told um, Saul regarding this group of Philistines that are encamped in the place that's promised to the Israelites. It says, they're, in essence, there are Philistines, a garrison of them here at this place. Do what your hand finds to do. And up until this point, we've seen Saul do nothing. And still in verse 3, we've seen Saul do nothing. You know, there is some question of the size of the force, but one of the things that I, I want to say to you is, is you ought to think of this like an outpost, like a, a wilderness fort. Israel has a border, and so do the Philistines, and the Philistines have their own territory. And these people there at Geva, the Philistines, are placed there, and they have some sort of stronghold. And the intention is to be a small number of people that stand as this, this show of force, as it were, to the Israelites. If you get out of line, we'll deal with you. And if you really want to have a big issue with us, we'll send an entire army. It's, it's to keep the, the Israelites under control. It's kind of like the wall of Hadrian, if you're familiar with the history of England and Scotland and, and the Roman wall that's along the line where the barbarian Scots to the north are not to invade and they're, they're holding it back. It's kind of like one of those small forts along the wall. And there's that one there at Geva. And we're told that Jonathan defeats the garrison with his thousand men. They overrun it. It seems like there's no issue. It's, it's a, a passing comment that has all of these other consequences. One commentator, actually more than one, whenever they read this, they have the question that I don't think the text gives us an answer for, but I want to introduce it to you anyway. They ask the question, is this Jonathan being the son of a king and being a reckless young man, eager for glory, like so many princes are in the shadow of the father who is a king? Does he just go out? Does he attack them of his own? Or is he under the command of Saul? I don't know. I don't know what the answer to that is. I can only tell you what Saul's response is. And it's sort of an interesting one. Because whenever this occurs, what Saul does is he goes on a propaganda mission. Look at it with me. And, well, excuse me, I want to point out one last thing. Uh, that in verse 3, the Philistines had heard of it. That makes perfect sense. This is an outpost, the Philistines... Uh, catch news of what has happened. But it's the latter part of verse 3 that gives Saul's response. We're told that Saul blew the trumpet throughout all the land. And he said, let the Hebrews hear. And all Israel heard it said that Saul had defeated the garrison of the Philistines and also that Israel had become a stench to the Philistines. Now when you read that kind of language, I mean you get a sense of it. But I want to paint the picture in biblical terms. And the phrase, blow the trumpet, this has specific relevance, especially in the Old Testament. In really close history, the history of the judges to this time, the time of the kings, is at hand. Uh, we read in Judges 3, chapter 26, about Ehud. Do you remember the judge? Ehud, Ehud, however you pronounce it. He's the one who was the left-handed assassin who goes into the very fat king, Eglon. Do you remember? And he comes in and he's got his 
left hand and he's got his sword on the side that would not be normal. So they check his coat for the side that they expect a right-handed person to keep the sword because people were trained to fight with right-handed styles for weapons. And they don't see the sword. And what does Ehud do? He takes a sword, he plunges it into the very fat king. The king dies. And after that, as he retreats, Judges 3.26, we read that Ehud, he blows the horn. He, he plays the trumpet, depending on your translation. And what is he doing? He's gathering fighting men. He's trying to let everybody know this great thing has happened. This great thing has happened. All of Israel come out. All of Israel join. All of Israel get ready for war. So whether Saul commands Jonathan... Or doesn't command Jonathan, doesn't matter. Saul makes use of the circumstance. This great event, he, he thinks on it and he, he uses it. And, and then what does he do? He spreads not only the blowing of the trumpet as it were, but he spreads the message. And what we're told that the people here is that Saul defeated the garrison of the Philistines. Now some people would say, well, you know, in a narrative... Of course, Saul's the king. He should get the credit. But here's the reality is that the narrative has already told us that Jonathan has accomplished this task. And there's this sense of opportunism. This is an opportunity for Saul to look mighty. And so he's told the people of Israel, he spread the word and not corrected any other telling of it, that he's the one that's triumphant. And in a larger sense, he is as king, sure. But it's his glory in the moment. And there's this sense of a a prideful beating of the breast and a shouting and a glorying over this event. A thousand men falling on probably a garrison that doesn't even number around a hundred or more. Again, these are outposts on the edge of the territory. They're intended to hold ground, not to advance. It's not a great military force. And it's the question that we have to ask the passage... When we read that the Philistines hear of it, is it only that they're hearing of the act of the prince of Israel and the person of Jonathan? Or are they hearing about a king that's blowing the trumpet and gathering the forces and preparing to hatch warfare against a much, much larger force and a people who weren't looking for a fight, a people who weren't attacking the people of Israel? You see, there's pride here. There's pride. Saul could have done a number of different things. He could have sought for peace. He could have said, sorry, this is my son. He's done a foolish thing. While I wasn't looking, he took my chariot and ran it into a tree. There's so many other things he could say and do. But no, it's his pride. And there's a response and a horrific response to his pride. And it's, it's the evidence of a leader that's not seeking the Lord. Could it even be conceived that If he had sought the Lord in prayer, if he had considered and if he had just done the normal things that would be, you know, dictated by common sense or spirituality and prayed before preparing for the attack that the Lord wouldn't have shown him this is a bad idea or stopped him in his tracks. No, he's just rushing in for a fight. He's looking for a thing recklessly because he's a prideful man. And it brings so much harm and destruction not only to the people of Israel but to his own household. We read in verse 5 that the Philistines mustered to fight Israel and that they have 30,000 chariots and 6,000 horsemen. 
in troops like the sand on the seashore in multitude. And these numbers are intended to impress. They're intended to be beyond our ability to imagine. That's the whole point. Even the last phrase, they don't even attempt to give some count of the men, the foot soldiers. They're just more than the sand on the seashore. This figurative phrase that is simply meant to say it's a multitude greater than you could possibly imagine. And that's what the Israelites encounter. That's what the Philistines send. That's what terrifies the men of Israel. Verse 6, when the men of Israel saw that they were in trouble, for the people were hard-pressed. You see, this group, this, this force, is, it's coming in. It's pressing into the lands of Israel. They were hard-pressed. What happens? The people hid themselves in caves and in holes and in rocks and in tombs and in cisterns. And even some of the Hebrews crossed the fords of the Jordan to the land of Gad and Gilead. And Saul was still at Gilgal, and the people were trembling. So you get the picture? I mean, they see the overwhelming force, and they are terrified, and they don't have any, any confidence in their leadership, and they have almost no confidence in the spirituality that would be the back of their army. They get the sense that Saul's not been on his knees, that Saul has not been a man after the heart of God, that he's not been a man seeking to be led by the Lord. And so they hide and they run. Most interestingly, whenever we read about the people that cross the fords of the Jordan, the land of Gad and Gilead, they're going across the river and they're, in essence, hiding in walled cities with the hope that they'll be far enough to retreat more if necessary. They've also got that river to slow down any invading force. And why is all this happening? It's because of his pride as a leader. He was a man that sought his glory rather than the glory of God. And he's going to pay very dearly for it. In verse 7, we read that Saul was still at Gilgal, and that all the people followed him trembling. And then we transition, verses 8 through 12, to his pragmatic sin. We read in verse 8 that he waited seven days. And this is an appointment. Uh, We read this as part of the culture uh, of the people of Israel set down by Samuel. He tells Saul on two different occasions to go to Gilgal and then to wait for seven days with the promise that then he will come, that he will seek the Lord for them, that they will make sacrifices. And so we read that Saul waits seven days, the time that was appointed by Samuel. And then we read in verse 8, but that Samuel did not come to Gilgal. And this is in the seventh day, okay? We're not in the eighth day yet. We're still in the seventh day. And we read that the people were scattering from him. And so you can put yourself in the shoes of it. You've got a leader. He's desperate. You've got a huge enemy, and they're backing them into a corner. And you've got the people already terrified, and the leader saying, we need to seek the Lord, and waiting, and the prophet doesn't come, and waiting, and the prophet doesn't come. One, two, three, four, five, six days, and the seventh day, the prophet still hasn't made it. He's not showed up. But that's the regular case of it. He's always been told to wait seven days, and what are the people to do in seven days? Probably spiritually prepare themselves, be in prayer, possibly in fasting. They're to be singing and worshiping the Lord. We don't read any of that. Instead, we read of people who are led by a leader who are themselves very afraid and a leader who is increasingly afraid of what might come. In verse 9, in the midst of the pressure of 
the people leaving, the Philistines coming, and no Samuel in sight. Saul says to the people, bring the burnt offering here to me and the peace offerings. And he offered the burnt offering. And as soon as he had finished the offering of the burnt offering, behold, Samuel came. And Saul went out to meet him and greet him. Samuel said to him, what have you done? And Saul said, when I saw that the people were scattering from me, and that you did not come within the days appointed, and that the Philistines had mustered at Michmash, I said, now the Philistines will come down against me at Gilgal, and I have not sought the favor of the Lord, so I forced myself and offered the burnt offering. You see, it it quickly devolves. And you've got a man who hasn't begun with the seeking of the face of the Lord, now backed into a corner because of the pridefulness and the boasting that he's had amongst the people that got back to his enemies. And all of a sudden, he finds himself in a circumstance where he's told to wait on the Lord, to have faith and wait. He waits seven days, and in the midst of the seventh day, he just eventually gives way to it out of the, well, the terrible things that seem to be happening. And he says, well, if no prophet will come, if Samuel is absent, I'll just do it myself. I'll just do it myself. And you see what we see in in Saul here is it's pragmatism. It's it's a a situation dictated ethics. He's he's hard pressed. The people are hard pressed. The people are afraid and the people are leaving him. And he doesn't know what to do. And instead of being quiet and a man of prayer and a man of faith, instead he takes things into his own hands and he lets his circumstances dictate his actions. Now we live in a day and an age where people say, you know, sometimes needs must, right? There are some things in life that if you just wait and you don't make a decision, that you'll be frozen and you won't actually get the thing done that needs to be done and people will end up hurt, especially in times of war. Sometimes things just pragmatically need to be done. It's pragmatism over principle, right? Better to have an action than to be overrun. And that's where uh, Saul simply says, yes, of course. And that's what he takes into his own heart. He knows that he's a king and he's ordained as a king, but he's not ordained as a priest. He's not a prophet. He has no right to be making sacrifices. He's not been consecrated for that. He's not been purified for that. He's not been trained for it to do these things appropriately and to lead the people of God. Nonetheless, he simply says, I'll do it my way. Not God's way. Not after seven days of waiting. I'll do it my way. In the midst of that seventh day, what does he do? He takes and he sacrifices this offering. But do you note he asked for two different kinds of offerings, the peace offerings and the burnt offerings, and we're only told that he deals with one. He's kind of in the middle of it. He's caught in the act. He's burned the burned offerings. Now a lot goes into that with the spilling of blood, with the anointing of an altar, with the lighting of a fire. All of these things and the consumption by flame of that which has been sacrificed. And there's Samuel. He's caught. He's caught him in the act. So the thing that I want to bring to us this evening is simply the question... That we need to face in ourselves, will we be a people led by our circumstances or by the principle of God's word? Are we going to be afraid of what things might happen because of other people? Are we going to be afraid of what people might think and how they may abandon us? Or are we going to be concerned with what pleases the Lord?
And you see, ultimately, that's the question that Saul deals with. He knows the right thing and he knows the wrong thing. And nonetheless, he chooses the wrong thing because why? Well, it's because of what he says in his excuse. He doesn't want to take any of the blame. He says, uh, let me read it to you. When I saw the people scattering for me, that's his first excuse. Um, and that you did not come in the day, days appointed, and that the Philistines had mustered at Michmash. Then I said, this is Samuel, or Saul's wisdom, now the Philistines will come down against me at Gilgal. Now it's, the, now it's just his own imagination. And he says, and I have not sought the favor of the Lord. He's got four different places where he takes and passes the buck. The first is what? It's the people. They're the ones leaving me. The second place, it's Samuel. He didn't show up. The third place, it's the Philistines. They're pressing hard. And then fourthly, the Lord is withholding favor. And whenever I look at this, you know, those are his reasons for pursuing his, his sin. Those are his reasons for pursuing the things that he wanted to pursue rather than the things that the Lord would have him pursue. But it really reveals something of the heart of a sinful person. And I wonder if, if any of this, the way he defends himself, makes you think of any other part of Scripture. It makes me think of the account of Genesis. Whenever the Lord comes and he seeks Adam, he seeks Eve. What does Adam come out and do? Whenever the Lord calls him to give an account. Well, he deflects. He deflects it, doesn't he? He says, that woman you gave me, it's your fault, God. That woman she gave it, it's her fault. She, she took the apple and she gave it to me. And then I ate. And isn't that the, the, the regular state of our souls? We see our sins. We see the things that we... Ought not to have done, but we did anyway. Do we then go to the Lord in repentance as we ought to? No, very often, what do we do? We say it's his problem, her fault. These are the five different reasons why this person or that person did this or that wicked thing. The thing I want to press you again, friends, is this. There's no excuse for the wicked heart not doing the things that please the Lord. And it is certainly not something that we can pass from one person to another person as if to say, they made me do it. It's a thing that we should own. And it's also a thing that before the Lord we ought to repent of and have faith that the Lord forgives the repenting sinner. But do we see repentance? Not a word of it. We see Saul take all ten of his fingers and point them at everybody else. These are the reasons why I did it. I was forced. He said, I forced myself. That's his language to go and to do this thing that I've not been appointed to do. You see, we live in a, in a day and an age where so much happens, even in the church today, out of pragmatism. Why do we do certain things? Why do you see people who ought not to be preaching, preaching? Pragmatism. And maybe the answer is somebody comes and says, Oh, but pastor, don't you know they can do it? Now, this guy's a great speaker. This lady's a great speaker. We've heard him speak. Anybody can do what you do. Of course, anybody can do what a minister does. Anybody can preach. Anybody that's uh, not a deaf mute can do this sort of thing. And even some of them can preach quite wonderfully with sign language. It's, it's not even a debate. Uh, it's, it's far beyond even the wildest imagination that even the great orators of the world are just going to be preachers. I've heard politicians that seemingly can move the hearts of men to do almost anything that they want. It's the question of the appropriateness of the acts of humanity. 
are the things that we do, things that we feel we can justify to ourselves because of the circumstances we're in. Well, there's nobody to go and do this. There's nobody to preach. There's nobody to do this thing or to lead this thing. And so somebody's got to do it instead of the one that the Lord has appointed to do it. Well, friends, I want to simply say to you, the things that the Lord appoints matter tremendously. And we'll always be found asking the simple question, is it more important that we feel pressed by our circumstances or led by the wonderful providence of the word of God? Am I doing the things that please him or the things that I feel the moment demands? Sometimes those things intersect, but I think more often than not, the world presses us to do the things that have nothing to do with the word of God. We go on in the passage of scripture and we have uh, Samuel's response to the defense that Saul offers uh, to him. And so look at that here uh, with me in verse 13. Samuel said to Saul, you have done foolishly, or you a foolish man have become. You have not kept the command of the Lord your God. What command is he talking about? Well, it's that he is to be a king and that he is also not a man who is ordained to be a priest. It's that simple command. We're not talking about one of the Ten Commandments of the Decalogue. We're not talking about one of the other extant laws that has to do with the appropriateness of his role as a king to not do the things that a prophet or a priest ought to be doing. You have not kept the command of the Lord your God, which he commanded you. For then the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever. Verse 14, but now your kingdom shall not continue. That's a really heavy sentence. You've got Samuel in a moment confusing himself and deciding to go and to do the work of a priest whenever he's not been allowed to do it. And the Lord's response is this, your household's going to fall. Your kingship will not be forever. You could have had it forever, but you've disobeyed this one time. And in this one transgression, you're being removed. Now there is the clear example that people who are in office, are held to a higher standard. That's correct. It's a right thing. And it's a principle that's in the New Testament that we will be uh, accountable doubly, we're told, as officers within the church of Jesus Christ. But here, it's not just that. It really reveals more than that because it's not only that he's a man that sinned once against the Lord by doing what he wasn't supposed to do, And that the Lord has said he's going to remove him, but that he's also going to replace him. And I think it's the language of replacement that we understand a whole lot more about this. We have an answer to the question, does this one's sin deserve all of this? Verse 14, but now your kingdom shall not continue. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart, and the Lord has commanded him to be prince over his people because you have not kept what the Lord has commanded you and it's there what's at the heart of the sin of Saul is it just that he did something he shouldn't have done he he took the bull and he sacrificed it he took the lamb and he sacrificed it and he has no business doing this and this is offensive to the Lord 
Well, it is offensive. No, the issue is the heart. Okay? The issue is the heart. It's not just that Saul has done this one thing, but that his heart is far from the Lord. Because the man that the Lord will appoint, that man that we know in the near future is David, and ultimately will be Jesus Christ, the man truly after the heart of the Lord, that his interest in his heart will be wrapped around the things that please the Lord, the God of heaven. And so when you place it into these terms, that if a king is to be a man, a servant of God, what sort of servant is he if he's not concerned with the things that please his Lord? Because in Saul's heart, he said, I'll do what I want to do. I'm going to do it on my timeline. Seven days, he hasn't come. The people are leaving me. I'm going to force God's hand. I'll have it my way. I want to conduct this war. I'm afraid of them. I'm afraid of what might happen. I'm afraid of this army. When the only thing he should have been fearful of was the God of heaven. The God of heaven. And the only thing that should have directed his actions ought to have been the pleasures and the word of his God. It's as simple as that. And so whenever people look at this, this punishment, this vote of non-confidence of the Lord, it makes perfect sense. How can the Lord trust him to be any sort of leader if he has no heart for the pleasures of the one he claims to serve? Now for us, we have to understand this in light of Broader history, don't we? We should, at least. We think about our sins. We consider all the sins, and maybe sometimes we take our sins and we want to rank them. Oh, you know, we got this sort of sin, breaking the speed limit. That's breaking the law. That's sin, I'm told. But that's kind of like a minor sin. It's not like some great sin, like the lust of cheating on my spouse. It's not like a great sin, like of blasphemy. It's not like a great sin, like a murder. It's not like some kind of great sin like abortion, or just really fill in the blank. You see, we take our sins and we put them on the this, this spectrum. Uh, some sorts of lying, like, oh, you know, you look great in that dress, even though maybe not so. Or, yes, that haircut looks great on you, John, even though the haircut's a mess. That's not nearly the sort of sin, so on and so forth. But the thing of it is, is every sin that we commit, every sin that we commit at its heart is an offense because it does not honor God. It is an action that we do because of what we want rather than the way the Lord has told us that we should behave and conduct ourselves. It's always us saying, I'll be the one in control. doesn't matter what the Lord wants, whether it's a small thing or a great thing, whether it's an act like that of Saul or whether it's some other act. In any case, it is a denial of the order, the power, the authority, and the pleasure of God. We had to face that in ourselves. We ought to be a people also that pursue the delights of the Lord. We pursue to live after the word of God and let it form for us an outline of the way in which we act, think, speak, and live. The latter part of this chapter gives us the context for the coming chapter. And so I want to go over it with you briefly so that we're set for the next time we come. Verse 15, we read that Samuel arose and went from Gilgal and that the rest of the people went up after Saul to meet the army that they went up from Gilgal to Gibeah. Now this is the hometown of King Saul. And that Saul numbered the people who were present with him, about 600 men. From 3,000 to 600. There's been this implosion of the army. 
30,000 chariots, 6,000 men on horseback, and a multitude of foot soldiers, and 600 Israelites against them. It's a very dark day. And we go on and we read that Saul and Jonathan and his son and the people who were present with him stayed at Geba, where Jonathan had overwhelmed uh, the garrison of the Philistines. But the Philistines encamped at Michmash. So they've sort of traded places as, you, as it is. And in verse 17 we read, And raiders came out of the camp of the Philistines in three companies. One company went towards Ophrah, another <coughs> towards Beth Horon, and then another toward the ba- valley of Zeboim. And what are they doing? It's these, these parties that are sent out from the Philistines, and they're known for this in the ancient history, and they're even imitated, where they would send out these groups meant to burn, pillage, and destroy, and what they're intended to do is to eliminate the ability of a, a foreign enemy to conduct war. That's what they're doing. And we're told in verse 19 sort of the character of what they've done. They've de-armed the Israelites. Now there was no blacksmith to be found throughout all the land, for the Philistines said, lest the Hebrews make themselves swords and spears. They've gone through and they've either killed or taken for themselves all the blacksmiths and weapon makers. And this puts the Israelites, the 600, against 36,000 plus a multitude on foot in a hard spot. They don't have weapons. All they've got is plowshares, mattocks, axes, and sickles. They've got farming instruments and dull ones at that that aren't prepared for war in any way, shape, or form. In fact, the only people that do have weapons set for war are Saul and Jonathan. And so what happens? Well, the Israelites then take their farming implements to the Philistines and pay them to be sharpened for war. It's almost a bizarre scene, really. We'll give you this much money, and we're going to fight a war against you, but can you sharpen our shovels before we try to hit you with them? That's the picture. And it's a time of utter desperation. And it's the result of prideful leadership that doesn't seek the heart of the Lord and that seeks his own ends over the means of the Lord. Desperation, that's the result of it in the lives of the people of God. And so it's my prayer that the Lord would continue to teach us as we keep studying this uh, history. Uh, Help us to be a faithful people. Help us to examine our own hearts. Uh, Help the leaders of our church uh, to be better uh, than Saul as a leader of the people of God. And that the Lord would bless us to be a people that would stand firm and who would seek the heart of God rather than the things that we want to do. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. Oh Lord, we thank you that we can gather again to consider it. Lord, we do pray that you would help us to understand it. Lord, that we'd be a people that would receive it joyfully. Father, we pray all of this in Jesus' holy name. Amen.